This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell for the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Carl Perry, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you so much for having me. It is so surreal to be one of the guests on this show rather than listening to it in my car. Well, I like you doing both, actually. I like you being a guest and I like you listening. So um, so an introduction, because this is Carl's first book, um, Mm -hmm. and he grew up in Ridgely in Tasmania. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. A tiny country town. So we're saying, and the reviews are saying that, well, how long has the book been out? Is it a couple of weeks? No, it only came out on Thursday. So what's Thursday. that? Yeah. Uh, four days? Yeah. Four Half days. a week old. Half a week yep. old. But it's yep. all really left leaving a mark on the literary world because everybody is talking about the bluffs, which is Carl's oh. book. Mm, mm. Yeah. It's, wow. it's 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 so surreal, Cheryl. It's like a it's like a fairy tale. <laughs> Carl and his family were raised in a small Tasmanian town and have lived there for most of their life. You said when we started this podcast off air that you're actually back in your family home. Is that right? Yeah. So, so right now as we do this, I'm sitting on my childhood bed. <laughs> oh, wow. Amazing. So you've grown up with your grandfather called on to do search and rescue missions around the mountains. Is that right? Yeah. So he passed away when I was quite young. So he and uh, my mum and all her siblings, they lived in a place called Western Creek, which is right at the base of the Great Western Tears. And that is where the township in my novel is set. And so he was a farmer, uh, but was also called upon to do search and rescue up in the mountains. And uh, I just remember stories that he'd used to tell us and then mum and nannies would used to tell us just about the people he'd have to rescue and the the scary things that used to happen up there and the dead bodies that occasionally find. Wow, the dead bodies. Okay, we'll get into that. Kyle also has pursued a career in youth work and rehabilitation, working extensively in high schools with teenagers. Kyle now travels between Tasmania's Northwest and Hobart, continuing his career as he looks forward to dive into perhaps full-time writing. That could happen, couldn't it? That would be the, that would be the dream. That would be the dream. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, Your book, uh, The Bluffs, does have a lot of young people in it. it is, well, it's young people who get lost. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Uh, and they're the main characters. Now, with a book like that, it has a real, well, firstly, I and this is probably a gross generalisation, but I'm going to say it anyway. It <laughs> seems to me that any time I read fiction, particularly from Tasmania, it always seems to have a strong sense of place because I think that place for all of us important, but it seems to be particularly important down there. Would you agree with that? Absolutely, absolutely. And I think that if, you have, if you're from the mainland, as we call the rest of Australia, and you come down to Tassie and you spend a 
bit of time, you do get this sense that we're a whole different country. You know, we, we have our own really unique culture. And I think that Tasmanians were very patriotic and we're yeah. very, like, we just love our state. We love our island. And because, you know, a large proportion of the island is still, you know, protected national parks, we have this really strong affinity to the bush. And, like, you can't be anywhere on all of Tasmania without being able to see a mountain. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we just, we just love that and we feel really drawn to that. Uh, I guess that's a big, a big reason why it comes across in most of Tasmanian fiction. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. For those that haven't been, it is, you know, the world's most beautiful place. I'm really yeah. drawn to it myself. It's a shame we can't get there at the moment. We are in COVID. Yeah, we've got a moat, so don't come. <laughs> no, no, that's right. So tell me firstly about your life experience working in youth shelters in high school and then how that came about to appearing in your fiction in a way. So, so my degree, I've got a joint degree in counselling coaching and my placement Um, was in a drug and alcohol rehab. And then following that, um, I began working in high schools as a youth worker. And I loved that job. It, it, It was really, really hard, obviously, and really eye-opening. And for me, I had such an amazing childhood. I had such a, a great upbringing. And so this exposure to the effects of trauma and also just this other side, you know, this other side of the river, this other side of the fence where these kids were growing up in these horrible families or these, these terrible things happening to them. And it had a big effect on my heart and on my mind, but it definitely um, changed the way I did my practice and it changed the way that I approached, um, I, I, you know, approached the world. And then, at the time, before I started writing The Bluffs, I was writing young adult fiction. Um, I was trying to, I've been trying to get published since I was like 16 years old. And I was writing these young adult fantasy novels. And then I started working with um, teenagers. And we had a few really interesting encounters um, with particularly social media and particularly conversations that I had with a couple of the lads I was working with where I realized that, man, there is just so much darkness and chaos and lawlessness that's happening like right under our noses. And so from that, we had this one encounter that stuck with me. And I don't, I don't think it's giving away too much when I say that they're about the book, but there's this one message thread that features in the book And um, part of that is a little bit of glorification of self-harm. So that message thread and and that that Facebook group was a real um, thing that we had to deal with that came up um, with a few of our students. And and the effects of that were just so tragic and just chilling. And and I remember the way it affected me. I want to talk a little bit about young people and social media, you know, all people in social media. Mm. I was having dinner with some friends the other night and she told me that she's deleted her Twitter account. She had, she's a person of influence and she had over 100,000 mm. likes and whatever. And I was really surprised at that. I asked the question why and she said she'd had enough of the trolling. And I said, but why do you, yeah. do you have to read it? What I can't understand is if I don't like something, like say, for instance, person to person, and I don't like what you're saying to me, I'm either going to, you know, say something 
back, tell you that, or I'm going to leave, right? You know, I'm not going to tolerate it. But it seems to be different with social media. The infiltration seems to be beyond the physical, if you like. She's an adult and she couldn't take it anymore. What Mm. is it, do you think, with social media and, and the inability for us as people not to be able to switch off to it and to ignore it? Well, I mean... I guess it's case by case, of course, yeah. kind of like you just pointed out. But what happens with people is boundaries. Boundaries are really important for our sense of self, our sense of identity, and also for our relationships. And so boundaries is that kind of idea or almost, you know, mental, emotional, spiritual barrier that separates us from someone else. And for some people, those barriers, those boundaries are really foggy. They're a bit nebulous. And so they're the people who will take on other people's issues. They'll take on other people's emotions. We call them diffuse boundaries. And so with social media, there's this weird blurring between reality and, you know, the internet or the virtual reality. And for a lot of people, we're still struggling to work out how to set boundaries up between ourselves and other people in real life without adding in this extra element of social media, virtual reality. How does that affect me as a person? And how do I put up boundaries between what people say about me online versus what I say about myself in real life? So it's definitely a, it's, it's a, an identity thing, but um, it's definitely case by case. And, and some people just, you know, the narrative that's told about us, for some people that has a bigger effect than for others. Mm-hmm. Um, and self-harming too. Is that something that we've seen an increase of or is it something that we're more aware of? Look, I don't know about the data. I know that it shocked me mm-hmm. how much of it there was Mm. and I work in oh man it makes me pretty emotional to talk about I work in men's health now and I work with rugged um, like recovering drug addicts I work with you know some of the biggest drug dealers you know that Australia has and you'd be surprised how many of them self-harm how many of them have scars on their forearms from where they've, they've cut themselves or, or they've just, they couldn't handle the internal pain, so they, they cause this external pain. And so, uh, again, I don't know about the data, but I know that it's definitely out there more than we realise. Mm. And it's just, it's devastating. It's mm. devastating to think that we, as a society, haven't yet managed to create a safe space for these conversations to happen externally so that this internal t- turmoil becomes this um this physical response so which that is takes, it, which it's no one's fault you know like we're all working no, towards it but yeah that's right yeah yeah and and most of us i mean it's terrible that people have to take themselves i don't particularly like twitter but it's terrible that you have to walk away from something that it, that can be so toxic and destructive it's and how can we not use it positively and yeah. we talk about often facebook and how terrible that's becoming yet when i deal with facebook on a daily basis through yeah. the better reading community mm-hmm. and if you want an example of how to use it well you just look at all those readers out there i read comments every day and i'm yeah. warm to my heart like you like you know yeah. and they're using it to as community it's such a shame so i want to go back to young people and i want to go back to how your experience and what you do brought you to writing the novel. So, I mean, we'll go back a step and just establish the fact that writing for me was 
um, always my goal and it was always like to be a full-time writer has always been the dream. Did you grow but, up reading and writing? Yeah, yeah, I grew up reading and writing. I grew up, um, like mum would read to me as a kid and then I'd read every night before I went to, before I went to bed and um, books and reading and writing was a massive part of our family. And so for me, in positive psychology, we talk about something called the flow state, which is this state of being that you go into where you're in the zone where nothing can touch you and time slips away. You lose track of, you know, whether you're hungry, whether you're hot or cold, where you are, what you're doing. You're singularly focused on your task. And some people find that in running, in art, in music. For me, um, my flow state is writing. And so since I was a kid, writing has just been my favorite thing to do. So to come to your question about how working with young people um, led to writing this book, it, it happened because I was writing anyway, because writing is, is my favorite thing to do. It was my hobby. It was my one dream. And I found myself just taking on all this toxicity in my job and taking on all this, this negative emotion and seeing these, these horrible, horrible things. And particularly, I was working a lot in grief and I was doing quite a bit of grief counseling. And it's such a hard thing to work with young people on grief because they're still getting introduced to the world. And suddenly you've got to help them navigate death and loss and what that means for the rest of their, of their life. And so I'd come back home and, and I'd use this cathartic process to write. And then along the way with uh, a bit more strategy, and a bit more um, clever thinking, I finally put it into, I kind of weaponized it really. And the outcome now is the bluffs. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com. What were you reading as a young child? As a, as a young child, I was the first book I remember reading is The, the Faraway Tree, Enid Blyton. Yeah. yeah. And then um, Secret Seven. Um, and then the first series that really lit me up inside was Del Toro Quest by yes. Emily Rodder. Yes, we love her. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I still I reread that. I reread that series every year. Oh, wow. yeah. oh man, I mean, I love Emily Rodder. I can't, one day I hope I get to meet her and just, just thank her for such a great childhood of stories. And then I was reading Tamora Pierce. Yeah. And when I was in grade six, I sent her an email and I said, um, I said, I just love your books. And one day I want to be a writer just like you. And, um, and she wrote back 
And and she wrote back and she said, I get lots of emails, but I don't always write back. But I was really charmed by your email and I think you're going to be a great writer one day. So I remember that really clearly as being, because people ask me, oh, when when did you know you wanted to be a writer? And And my answer is, oh, always, always. But I do remember this one email that I got back that said, yeah, you, you've got what it takes. Sometimes you just need that tiniest of seeds, don't you? Just in, in order to keep going or mm. or to affirm what you're doing in a way. Yeah. yeah. It's for someone to witness it and say, yeah, yeah. Like, yep, it's not a stupid idea. You can yeah. do this. I came into book selling and publishing that way. I, I, I thought I wanted to be a primary school teacher. Yeah. And I, in my second year, I went on a prac and I really discovered that I didn't like children very much. <laughs> <laughs> Problematic, right? No, that, that's, that's fair. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And instead of failing me, I, the, the teacher that was supervising me said, do you know, I think maybe you should, because I was work, working in a place that had a bookshop, yeah. maybe you should go and work in the bookshop for the summer holidays and see yeah. how you go. And, do you know, that was the best advice I ever yeah. had. Yeah, because I didn't turn around from that. So sometimes yeah. it's just something as little as that, right? Did you fight that suggestion or did you just take it on board straight away? I, that afternoon I went upstairs and I applied uh, for the job and I got it. And wow. Yeah, and that was it. And I never, I have not deviated from my career since then. Yeah. So yeah. that's significant. Those little events like that, they're, they're big. Well, I guess for you, because even in your email, in the response from the author, it just it gives you that encouragement that you need, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So then you were writing sci-fi. Do you think every young man writes sci-fi? <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, I was writing science fiction and I was writing fantasy and I was, man, like I... I used to live in these these like fantasy worlds, like daydream worlds nonstop. And I had this practice that I'd do after school every day where I'd go up on the trampoline and I'd bounce on the trampoline and I'd just slip into like daydream land and yeah. just invent these stories and put myself in, in other places, other countries, other planets and just, you know, just run these stories out. And I think now, like I don't, I need to do a bit more research, but I think technically that might have been classed as maladaptive daydreaming because I did it so often. <laughs> it was like my favourite hobby. I don't know what that means. Tell me what that means. Maladaptive daydreaming. I need to do a bit more research, but I know that it's kind of where you daydream too much to the point where it, <laughs> it can affect your um, your day-to-day life. You're not living reality. <laughs> yeah, like you use it as a – I mean, everyone daydreams. Everyone yeah. has their, their dissociative regulation techniques, but there are some people who do it to the point where it affects their real life, which was definitely the case for me. <laughs> but I often hear writers, I mean, you know I've talked to many, many writers, but yeah. often when writers talk to me about character and mm. they get right into it and they're describing the character to me and they're saying, you know, but the character did this and really I wanted the character to do that. And I'm sitting here thinking, what? You know? <laughs> <laughs> So many authors have said that to me. I wanted to take the right the character down this path and she chose or he chose to go down that path. And I'm thinking, you're writing the book. How did that yeah. happen? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, that's such an interesting question too because, like, it's a spectrum, right? Because you've got one side of the spectrum where you've got this, what Liz Gilbert calls this animist pagan idea that ideas are alive and they exist in another dimension and that us as creatives, we're just channeling those ideas. And then you've got the other side of the spectrum, which is that, nah, it's just cold, hard maths and it's just our brains, you know, coming up with these ideas. I know that 
for the bluffs, the way it all came together did seem quite magical, supernatural. And my detective character, Con Badenhorst, I wanted him to be really laid back and casual and I wanted everyone to like him. But the story just wouldn't fit and he just didn't fit in there and he was really annoying. And so it got to the point where I had to change him. I had to literally just... So he was annoying to you. He was annoying to me. He was kind of like a a bit of grit, you know, in your teeth. Like the story just didn't fit. And so in that way, I don't use that language where I say, oh, you know, the character told me he wanted to change. But I definitely identified that the character didn't fit. And so I can understand why people come from that point of view. And sometimes it does feel like I'm channeling from another realm, but also I kind of a little bit more lean towards your side of things where at the end of the day, it's me calling the shots. It's coming from my head. You know, there's lots of people giving me insight into this book and they're giving me feedback and I'm taking that all on. At the end of the day, I'm pulling the strings. This book will do what I want it to do. (laughs) Exactly. Um, In an ideal world. (laughs) So tell me then how you transition from writing fantasy sci-fi. Really, this is crime it's not dystopian. No, it's complete. Just yeah, it's completely crime. crime. Yeah. 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 Yep. Crime. It's just, at what point in your writing did that happen? And then when did you know that you had something? Oh, I love this story. Okay. <laughs> okay. Strap in. This is going to be a good story. Okay. Good. I'm okay. ready. <laughs> Are you ready? So again, I've been writing all my life. I wanted to be a writer. Okay. We've yeah. established that. And then yeah. from about 16, I started writing about a manuscript a year. And they were all in that fantasy, sci-fi genre. And the first ones were pretty bad, but the later ones by about six or seven, they were getting pretty good. I, you know, they were young adult. They were pretty stereotypical, you know, lots of cliches, but they were getting there. Um, practice. Yeah, practice. And my characters were interesting. And I, even though, and I will say this in all honesty, I'm not naturally good at writing. I... And really good at coming up with ideas, again, potentially that maladaptive daydreaming gene, but the actual prose writing, the writing itself, the dialogue, everything, I had to work really, really hard. I had to work really hard to get good at that. So that may be why, you know, the bluffs is about my 11th or 12th manuscript, you know, it took me that long. Anyway, I'm writing these, these kids' books and by about the, we'll say the ninth, it was pretty good. Pretty good. I, I thought it was the one that was going to get me published. And because it's quite hard to get an agent in Australia, I felt at that time, because there weren't that many taking on new clients, I reached out to this big New York City agent and I sent my manuscript off to him. It was Young Adult Fantasy and he loved the premise. He loved the chapter sample and he asked for a full submission, which for anyone who's trying to get published knows that's a massive deal. Mm, absolutely. Um, and then he responded and he said, oh, I, you know, it's just missing this, this and this. Let's do a revise and resubmit, which is, again, a big, big deal. And I was so excited and I thought, yes, this is the one. And so I did what he asked me to do and I fixed it up and I sent it back to him and I waited and he replied and he said, look, this is a great book. This is a great story, but I don't have the editorial vision for it. However, send me anything else you've got. Now, at this stage, I'm going to say it was the 10th book. I'm 10 books in. 
I've got as close as I've ever got. And I fumbled on the finish line and I thought, what do I do next? I don't know what I'm doing wrong. I don't know how to get here. And I know that I'm never going to rest until I get published. I know that I'm never going to rest until this is what I do in my life. And so at that stage, I'd started working in high schools and I was starting to see a bit more of the grittier side of life. But more to the point, I finally had a bit more money behind me. And so even up until this point, I had hired some manuscript appraisers and I got a little bit of help for some previous manuscripts, but again, didn't get over the line. So with this book, what I did was I reached out on this national Facebook, National Writers Australia Facebook page. And I said, hey guys, I'm looking for an editor who hopefully has some kind of agency affiliation who can I can hire to read my book and tell me what I'm doing wrong, please. <laughs> and so someone responded and they said, you should check out Hayley Nash of the Nash Agency because I've worked with her as an editor and she's brilliant and she's also an agent. So I looked her up and I found her details and I sent her an email and I gave her a kind of my full life story. And I said, this is all I want to do with my life. This is where I'm up to with this book. Can you please, I'm going to hire you. I'm going to throw money at you. Can you just tell me what I'm doing wrong and help me get this over the line, please? And she responded with, before I help you spend your money, let's have a chat about the genre. Because, you know, if you've written this many novels and you haven't got anywhere, maybe you should try something different. And my first response when I saw that email was that flash of, how dare you? <laughs> this is what I was born to do. But that only lasted for like, you know, 30 seconds. And then I thought, you know what, let's think about this. And so I responded to her and I said, all right, change of plan. Can I hire you for a phone call? And let's have a chat about me, who I am, and maybe what my strengths might be as a writer. And she was like, yeah, I've never done that before, but let's do that. So we had, I had a phone call with Hayley Nash and we spitballed some ideas. And she said, like, what do you want to write? What else do you want to write? And I'd loved the idea of writing crime because I'd always loved mystery novels and I'd loved Teen Power, Inc. by Emily Rodder. But I never thought I was good enough to write adult fiction. And also because I've been writing young adult for so long, it was kind of like, I've just got to stick with this until something happens. But I had a chat with her and I thought, you know what? I've got something important to say about this space. And I've been working with drug dealers. I've been working with troubled teens. I've been working with the grittiest side of life that a lot of people don't see. And I think I've got something important to say. And so I had a chat with her and I said, look, maybe I'm going to write something like this. And she said, great, send it through and I'll still help you spend your money. <laughs> so I wrote the bluffs and I wrote the first draft in three months. I smashed it out. And I sent that to Haley, and I'll never forget her response because it was something like, wow, mm, I am wow. floored by what you managed to achieve in just three short months. And that's when I thought, okay, all right, we've got a book here that has potential. Let's see where this goes. And she gave me some feedback, obviously, that, you know, it's what I'd hired her to do. And I said, look, I don't want to, like, I don't want to be annoying here, but do you think there's potential you'd like to sign me eventually? And she said, you just keep doing the feedback that I suggest and then, and then let's have a chat. What followed this was about two years of a slow dance around each other because I did the feedback that she suggested and then I'd send it back to her. But because she's a very busy woman 
and she hadn't yet signed me, she obviously couldn't prioritize my manuscript. But whenever she had free time, she'd still keep encouraging me and she still kept giving me feedback. And then she even gave it to her intern at the time. And then they sent me information as well, sent me feedback. And then eventually, eventually, two years later, came that magical email where Haley said, all right, it's good enough. I want to sign you. We're ready. Yeah, we're ready. Let's go, baby. (laughs) I love that story. And now you're here talking to me. So that's a really long story, but I think it's important because it's an important part of of, of my journey because I, I had to be, I, I had to be smart and I had to do something different and I had to take a risk and try something that I didn't think I had inside of me to do, but I ended up being the, the best possible thing. And then within a week I sent it off to her. She said, yep, it's ready. And then within a week it was sent to Penguin on exclusive. So for your listeners who don't know what that means, it basically means that Penguin gets the first look at the novel and they can come back with an offer and if it's good enough, then they get the contract. But if not, then it goes to auction. So, you know, they've got to kind of come back with a good enough offer to take it off the table. And, and they did. Oh, man, they did. Oh, Penguin's got it. Ali Watts. You're and in very so, good company. Oh, man, she sent. So, man, I'm getting emotional with this too. So within a week, so Ali, my publisher, she sent an email back to, um, sorry, thinking about it gets me worked up. She sent an email to, to Haley, and I'll never forget this email. But I just remember it starting with just a quick note before the week ends to let you know that I have devoured the utterly brilliant and insanely compelling novel of Kyle Perry's. It had me up until 2 a.m. I am completely addicted. What a story. What a talent. And well, there you go. The oh, book. Man. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> You're making me emotional. <laughs> the book is called The Bluffs. Um, Kyle, I can't thank you enough and congratulations. Thank you so much. It's so, so good to be here. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere. Or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of ebooks and e audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. 
The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.